Woke up this morning with the sundown shining in. I found my mind in a brown paper bag, but then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. I tore my mind on a jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. Hello, and welcome to the When We Were Young podcast, where the pop culture hits of yesteryear come back to life because we only moved the gravestones, we didn't move the bodies. <laughs> Today, we drop in to see what condition our condition is in and revisit the favorite film of at least one of our co-hosts, The Big Lebowski. I am Seth Pearson, that (laughs) (laughs) co-host. And I am the host most likely to get you a toe by three o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to really tie the room together. And I'm Becky, and I'm not the podcast host most likely to bring a fucking Pomeranian bowling. I'm not buying it a fucking beer. It's not taking a fucking turn. I'm not even sure how to preface this episode, because my life, I feel, is indivisible from The Big Lebowski (laughs) at this point. I don't know if you know this, but since we have known each other, I have watched this movie on almost constant repeat. This movie has been ingrained in my daily life and especially in my film consumption for about 15 years strong now. (laughs) Did I already know that? (laughs) I I, I don't know if you knew that, Becky. It's just that this this film became like the wallpaper of my life at some point. Oh, it was your GTT wallpaper. (laughs) Exactly. I have written diaries about my love for The Big Lebowski. So, Chris, I believe we have a new review in the iTunes corner. We certainly do. It's from Joe the Builder. (laughs) Is he related to Joe the Plumber? (laughs) Probably not. They're probably enemies. (laughs) (laughs) Mortal foes. The title of the review is Appalled. (laughs) The review states, I'm shocked and appalled at your brutal attacks on Hermes' dreams of being a dentist. (laughs) What movie are we talking about? <laughs> she doesn't even remember. Oh my god, Becky. What are we talking about? Clearly you're just a bunch of anti-dentites. Five stars. Wait, what movie is that? Oh, this has gone in so many directions. I'm sorry, we've done like 36 episodes. I can't remember. That would be the Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. <laughs> I would have never remembered that. But we would have been here all night. <laughs> to be fair, this was written right after that episode came okay. out, so we're just late in getting to this review. But I'm like, was um, that from the Blair Witch Project? Like, I don't remember. Like, who was that? And I mean, I was just catching on the tone. Like, it was. It seemed so angry, so irate, so hurt. Yes, it is. And then it twists with the five stars. So I really appreciate this reviewer for not holding his anger against us, disagreeing with us wholeheartedly. And then referencing Seinfeld. Anti-dentite. It's a Seinfeld reference. Guys, this is references to two separate episodes in one review. Is this person a potential new super fan? Possibly. Well, he is appalled by us, so hopefully. <laughs> Joe the Builder, um, we appreciate your feedback. We will not take it into consideration, but we do appreciate it. And we appreciate all five of your stars. For the record, I was totally fine with uh, Hermie and his dentistry. So I am, I am not an anti-dentite. I'm a 
pro-dentite. <laughs> I'm weirded out by teeth in most circumstances, so, you know, count me con. <laughs> I've just seen this movie so many times at this point that I'm not sure what life is like outside of Lebowski land. So, I guess my first question is, how many times have each of you seen The Big Lebowski? And more generally, what is your experience with the Coen brothers, the creative force behind the film? I have probably seen The Big Lebowski, I want to say, more than any other movie that exists. <laughs> okay, thank God I'm at least on the same page with someone in this podcast. Chris? I have seen it once. <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe less than anyone else who exists. <laughs> I have to say, though, that I only saw it once, like the year when it came on DVD. I watched it once and I didn't care for it. <laughs> I remember very vividly me and my sister were watching it really late at night and we were in bed with the lights off watching The Big Lebowski and we both fell asleep. And then I woke up and I was like, I'm not really into this movie. And she was like, me neither. And we turned it off. <laughs> and then that was like... 99, so what, right? Because this is 98. Mm-hmm. Is this the 20th anniversary? Yes. yes. I, I can do math. <laughs> it's the centennial of the Big Lebowski. And then I don't think I watched it again until I met Seth in college. So I think you got me into this movie. And I must have just bought it, and then it just spiraled out of control from there. So, <laughs> so very Thank interesting God. that I was not into this movie uh, immediately. Hmm. Chris, when did you see it for the only time? Uh, right after it came out on video, so probably 99 or maybe like late 98, I saw it and I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> okay, so, but high school age. Yes. Um, Not to go, not to probe too deeply, but like, did you drink then? Did you? <laughs> no. Consume any narcotics at that point? I was probably only having a glass of milk. There was no <laughs> Kahlua. Not even chocolate milk? <laughs> no, it was probably just plain all. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we've mixed up a few nice Caucasians here as we sit down. Um, So that's interesting. So only one time. Yeah. Uh, Did you see the other Coen Brothers movies around that same time? I'm trying to remember. This might have actually been my first Coen Brothers movie because as we've discussed on the podcast many a time, I basically watched whatever Entertainment Weekly told me to. And this was a movie that Entertainment Weekly told me to watch. Uh, and it was, like, really hyped up as this, like, hilarious comedy. And so I was like, all right, yeah, I'll check that out. That sounds fine and weird. Um, and I watched it. I, I don't know if I didn't like it, but I just didn't find anything in it that spoke to me. It was just kind of weird and off the wall. And I really remembered absolutely nothing about this movie except for Julianne Moore dressed as a Viking. So I knew what I liked back then. <laughs> Vikings? <laughs> yeah. But in general, on the Coen brothers, I know I saw Fargo around the same time, also because that was a big Oscar movie, and I'd heard that was good, and I think I appreciated that more. I didn't, again, like watch that movie very often. Um, I might have seen it, like I've probably still only seen it two or three times. Um, That's crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> In general, I have kind of a grudge with the Coen brothers. I find them overrated a lot of the time. 
To me, they are a little bit more style than substance. They have like really imaginative ideas, but they're kind of sloppily executed a lot of the time. And they do have some really good movies, but they're kind of filmmakers that I get tired of in the same way that I've kind of grown tired of Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson, just because it kind of feels like the same joke over and over again, just in different settings. And so for me, their movies get retroactively worse as I think about them. I had not seen The Big Lebowski since I was in high school or really even thought about it, except for kind of like I was saying in the Simpsons episode, it's a very cultish thing and people will quote it. And I found those quotes very annoying. (laughs) And I just like... Well, anytime anybody quotes something that you aren't like in on the joke, like you're going to find it annoying. Exactly. Like any any cult that you're not part of is annoying to you. I mean, no (laughs) one is like, well, you know, I'm not a part of that cult, but it seems like they've really got something. (laughs) My experience of The Big Lebowski was much more like out of context quotes that the dude abides and I don't even, that's the main one that I remembered. So I was going into this feeling, it would, <laughs> not not great. <laughs> Just feeling nauseated generally? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so of the Coen brothers in general, um, I mean, I've seen 12 of their movies besides Big Lebowski. Okay, and which which would you say are your favorite Coen brothers I that think you've the- seen? Good ones are No Country for Old Men and Fargo. Then there's some okay ones. There's four okay ones, which are True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, Barton Fink, and Hudsucker Proxy. And then six of them are not things that I enjoyed. Some of them very strongly did not I bet enjoy. you some of those are my favorites. <laughs> uh-huh. Probably. Also, the restraint of your language, there are things I did not so much uh, quite enjoy as much as perhaps the other people in this room. They did not bring me mirth. <laughs> I mean, I think some of their movies are terrible, but they have such diehard fans that it seems like even the kind of bad movies I'm talking about, like Hail Caesar, for example, um, gets like praised by people and like sometimes ends up as like a top 10 movie for people because like it's the Coen brothers and some people like literally everything they do. And so that kind of like just muddies the water of them for me. I also am really mad at them for winning the Oscar against There Will Be Blood and Paul Thomas Anderson. But you just said you like that movie. No I country. do, but I like There Will Be Blood more. <laughs> and Paul Thomas Anderson should have an Oscar. I will freely admit that year was very tough for me because Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coen brothers were my first favorite writer-directors ever. Mm-hmm. So, Becky, what is your Coen's experience? Um, and how many times, you know, have you seen their other films in relation to how many times you've seen Lebowski? I love the Coen brothers. And I actually, a, a, a week ago, I probably would have said I'm like half and half on them. Like, I either love their movies or I hate them. But this past week, I went above and beyond, and I watched almost their entire filmography again. Oh Truly, God, that sounds so exhausting. <laughs> no, like did I, yeoman's work. it was super fun. Like, all their movies are really different. They take place in really different time periods in different parts of the world. But I feel like they do that, but are the exact same movie in all of those No, I don't agree at all. And, that, and it really does help that sometimes they have really goofy movies and they have really serious movies. And some of the best ones have a good split. Like, my favorite movie of theirs, it 
I would have to say they have the greatest run from for me personally. Hutsucker, Proxy, Fargo, Big Lebowski, which was their three movies in a row. Because the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw was The Hutsucker Proxy. And I remember being young and seeing it. I was really into Tim Robbins. I really liked Dead Man Walking when it came out and he was the director. And then I really liked Shawshank Redemption. And I remember thinking that's such a weird title. And also he was also in the Hudsucker Proxy, which is like the strangest title. So for some Where's reason... the Hudsucker Redemption? <laughs> <laughs> like they're the strangest <laughs> names for movies and he starred in both of them. And so I watched both those movies. And I just remember thinking the Hudsucker Proxy when, like spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the very beginning of the movie has the CEO jumping out a window and committing suicide, but it's like a cartoon. And I just remember being flabbergasted. Like, I've never seen a movie like this before, even though The Hudsucker Proxy is very clearly trying to emulate a certain type of movie from the 40s and 50s. Like, It's a Wonderful Life and The Sweet Smell of Success. But like, as a 10-year-old, like I didn't know that. I was just like, wow, this movie is doing things I've never seen before. And that's kind of what I feel like in a lot of Coen Brothers movies, as I'm seeing things that I would never see before in another movie. And sometimes it doesn't work for me, but most of the time it does. And I think what's really interesting about them for me is that, like I said, the first time I saw The Big Lebowski, I was like, I don't really like this. Like, I don't get it. It feels strange. What's that? Tangent? Is that a tangent? Like, I just wasn't into it. And I think that a lot of the times I had to watch the movie for a second time, or even a third or fourth time, to appreciate it. Which... Typically, I don't like, like, usually if I'm like, if I don't like your movie the first time, then I don't like your movie. But I seem to give them the benefit of the doubt more often, and I'm usually rewarded. Like, I didn't really care for Inside Lewin Davis when I saw it in theaters, but then I rewatched it again, and I was like, okay, I'm getting a little bit more out of it now that I know what the movie is. This past week, I watched it for like a third or fourth time. And I actually started to really enjoy it and really like it and discover things about it that I didn't discover before on on first viewings. Not every moment worked for me. Like, it, I don't think it's like genius, but more often than not, if I rewatch their movies, I discover things about them that I didn't notice before. But I just think that's kind of incredible. I don't think a lot of filmmakers are like that, where you can get something out of repeat viewings like that. But I think my all-time favorite is Fargo. See something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. I watched it all the time. That was when the Oscars in 1996 were like all indie movies were nominated for Best Picture. And that was the year that I got into movies when I was 13 and I like knew I wanted to go into film and and I watched like everything. And that was the year me and my mom went and saw every single Oscar nominee. And we both really, really loved Fargo. And so Fargo was like on all the time in our house. Like I've probably know every line of dialogue to Fargo and I hadn't watched it in a while because it's just one of those movies that I know so well and so I watched it again this week and I was like oh this blows everything out of the water it's just so good it's just perfect and it's one of their movies that blends comedy and drama so well together well but I do think that it's one of their more straightforwardly dramatic movies overall and so I did think an interesting Chris that all the one that the ones that you mentioned um were kind of their definitively like more serious quote-unquote movies Mm -hmm. you know and all of their movies kind of mix multiple genres um and all of them have um you know hilarity in the tragedy but it's just interesting that those are chris the ones that you've gravitated more toward um were you 
more particularly offended by their sillier movies? A lot of them, I just feel like the stories don't work that well. Like, they're really imaginative ideas. And, like, they, they create a great world and populate it with really, like, quirky and fun characters. But I never seem to like where those comedies go. Like, Burn After Reading, Intolerable Cruelty. I really hated A Serious Man, and I know... I love it. I mean, in general, <laughs> I know that... Uh, the Coen brothers are very well respected by film critics, so it's one of those kind of sore spots for me where it's like the critics all really like them for the most part. And it's like, mm, I can't really like be like, they're all wrong and I'm right. It's more just like a kind of a personal taste where it's just like, I don't know, they, they seem kind of like trolling for laughs a lot of the time. Like a lot of it seems to be kind of just like weird or quirky for quirky's sake. And I don't, and, like, not adding up to much in the story. Like, there's a lot of, like, throwaway characters who will never really, like, make a difference in the plot. And sometimes that's funny, but a lot of times I'm just like, uh, like, I don't know. It's not... In general, their comedy is not for me, and I like I like it much better when it's in a movie that works as a story overall. Okay. Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely see and respect that perspective. So my own Cohen history was that the first Cohen Brothers movie I ever saw was Raising Arizona. I saw that in high school. Every year we had a couple of weeks where we'd take different classes. One of those that I took was a movie class and like a history of cinema. So we saw The Trip to the Moon. We saw uh, Metropolis. Uh, and I saw Raising Arizona. And, All the classics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, those were the three movies. That was it. That was the entire That's class. a very strange mix. But that movie really blew me away because I'd already gotten into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So I really liked kind of very silly comedy. And I really liked like the Naked Gun movies growing up too. And Raising Arizona, a movie that I have loved since I first saw it and have rewatched a bunch of times, is a very slapsticky movie. But it's also... One that's dealing with very serious dramatic subjects like parenthood and adulthood and being a criminal, being a police officer. So I really appreciated, even the first time that I saw it, the ways that the Coen brothers kind of mixed genres all together and mixed story elements that on paper would seem very disparate and opposite, but made them into a very cohesive whole. They got a name for people like you, hi. Recidivism. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. These were the happy days. The salad days, as they say. And Ed felt that having a critter was the next logical step. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. I also, from the very beginning, was just so drawn into their visual style and the world that they create. Chris, I feel like you kind of pick up on the that wavelength of theirs when it's in that more dramatic mode. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I kind of like immediately gravitated toward the way that they tell their stories uh, from the get-go. And the first time I saw The Big Lebowski was early in college at USC. My friend had a house party, like a kind of regular house party situation where they were renting a house with like four of their roommates. And so they'd have these fun parties and they'd always be showing a movie like of one quality or another. And uh, at one... <laughs> a at trip one, to the moon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A trip to the moon. Uh, Metropolis by Fritz Lang, the sci-fi classic. 
and the Big Lebowski. Um, yeah, one night they at a party, just a house party, they were screening the Big Lebowski, and their parties weren't super noisy, but I know that there was like music bumping and people dancing elsewhere. But I kind of got immediately hypnotized by what was happening on screen um, and just got immediately drawn into this movie. And um, as I've kind of learned over time, happens with a lot of people who become fans of Big Lebowski. It's just a thing that happens to be on at a party at some point and you get drawn in, you know, like many cults. It calls to you, yeah. Yeah, it calls <laughs> to you. They they have recruitment strategies, clearly. I was just kind of hypnotized by the world that it creates, by the the strangeness of this movie. I mean, since then, I've basically come to love most of the Coen Brothers movies I've seen. I don't love, like, The Man Who Wasn't There. True Grit was okay. I really loved No Country for Old Men. And that, among Big Lebowski and Raising Arizona, to me, one of the things I've loved the most about the Coens is how rewatchable their movies are and how much more you can kind of glean from them and get from their stories, the more times you watch them. I guess I don't do that because I almost never watch them more than once. I think that's the problem, honestly. But this is what you always say. I know, like, but I said this is like... Maybe the movies that you don't rewatch again are the exception, too. No. <laughs> Definitively, no. <laughs> so now that we've gotten our Cohen histories out of the way, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Coens. Joel Cohen was born in 1954 and Ethan Cohen in 1957 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis. Together as kids, the brothers remade movies that they saw on TV with their neighborhood friend Mark Zimmering as the star. Their first attempt was a romp entitled Henry Kissinger, Man on the Go. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have not found that on YouTube. <laughs> we'll keep digging, though. Um, and Joel Cohen got his start in the film business as an assistant editor for Sam Raimi on the film Evil Dead, which is a cult horror classic with Bruce Campbell. Um, and is that how they both got their start? Did he just say, like, my Ethan's going to do half of it, but you just don't have to pay him or credit him? <laughs> well, so that was kind of Joel's leg into the industry. And after that point, um, Joel and Ethan Cohen became co-writers with Sam Raimi on a couple different movies. Um, so they, that literally was kind of both of their entry point into the business. Um, that led in 1984 to Joel and Ethan Cohen's first feature film. They wrote and directed Blood Simple. Uh, that movie mashed up noir and horror genre elements in a story about a bar owner hiring a private detective to kill his wife and her lover. It's a really solid first movie. It is such a fucking solid first movie. Yeah, it definitely feels like a first movie, but it's really good that's not what you would expect you'd probably expect something a little bit more amateurish like i really it's very yeah. assured there are moments in that movie that are just visually like sublime um it's it's obviously their visual style is not nearly as developed as it would get but it's there like you yeah chris have you seen blood simple no there's a lot of those the one a lot of the early praised movies of theirs like uh, miller's crossing and blood simple are kind of like on my list, but not high priorities because I don't like that many of their movies very much. So, well, I mean, it stars Francis McDormand, um, who put forward really amazing performances in many Coen Brothers films. Becky, mm -hmm. how many can you name? Francis McDormand, Blood Simple, Fargo, Burn After Reading. Is there more? Oh, she's from Raising Arizona. Is there more than that? 
I think that's about it. All right. <laughs> I feel like Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri is kind of a Coen it Brothers movie. It feels like movie, it, yeah. It's not. <laughs> Irish Coen Brothers. The O'Coen Brothers. <laughs> the O'Coen Brothers. <laughs> oh, damn you. Frances McDormand, yes, put forward really fucking tremendous performances in all of those movies Becky mentioned. And she is married to Joel Cohen. Exactly. And she is married to Joel Cohen and has been for many, many years. So their second feature as writers and directors was Raising Arizona in 1987, which, again, I think is a really excellent slapstick comedy film starring Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, Francis McDormand and John Goodman, who, again, were just collaborators throughout the Coen Brothers history, were also in this movie. And then the Coen Brothers really broke out into both popular and critical success in the 1990s, with a series of films starting with Miller's Crossing in 1990. That's the only one I've never seen. It's also tremendous. Um, again, I cannot recommend like their early movies highly enough. Chris, I think you will actually dig them a lot more than their more silly work. Um, Miller's Crossing stars Albert Finney, Gabriel Byrne, and John Turturro, who's another longtime Cohen's uh, stable actor, uh, about feuding gangsters in the Prohibition era. Uh, The following year, they released Barton Fink, and that is their first movie set in Los Angeles. It's about a New York playwright, also played by John Turturro, who moves to Los Angeles to write a B-movie and suffers writer's block until John Goodman's character barges into his life. Can you really write a B-movie? <laughs> <laughs> Barton Fink was a critical success, earning Oscar nominations and winning three major awards at the Cannes Film Festival in 1991, including the Palme d'Or. Barton Fink was their first film with cinematographer Roger Deakins, a key collaborator for the next 25 years of their career as well. Their first uh, cinematographer was Barry Sonnenfeld, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, and of course, as we know, Barry Sonnenfeld went on to direct such films as The Addams Family and Addams Family Values. And Men in Black. The Hudsucker Proxy, which was co-written with Sam Raimi, then came out in 1994. In that film, the board of a large corporation in 1958 New York City appoints a naive schmo as president for underhanded reasons. The movie bombed big time at the box office. But you should still see it. (laughs) I still haven't rewatched this one, to be honest. And this was, I know for a fact, a taped VHS at my home, (laughs) but I never watched it. It's so good. I love it so much. I'm, I quote it all the time, and nobody's seen it, so no one knows what I'm quoting. I have seen it because Becky has made me watch it along with Barton Fink. Yeah, like freshman oh. year in college. What? That's the only reason I've seen that movie. I think I think it's, I've never saw Barton Fink with you. I've only seen that movie like once. <laughs> I think I think Becky I think Becky is gaslighting Chris about movies that she's secretly forced him to watch. Unless, Why unless, else would I watch Barton Fink? I don't know. Maybe that's the one time I watched it. Okay, maybe it is. <laughs> okay, I can't uh, But I just want to mention, like, that you <laughs> went over those movies and the plot, and it's for some reason their movies do not stick with me. Like, I can barely remember what any of them are about. Like, I might remember one or two things, but like, I couldn't remember the plot of the Hudsucker Proxy. I couldn't remember Barton Fink. Is it I, because of the titles, or like have? are kind of strange. I don't know. It's just like something about the stories just don't connect with me. It's just, it kind of feels like a string of strange things that isn't really connected. And I don't really like see it as a movie. It just is kind of like a lot of madness. I think that's your loss. You're pretty much (laughs) on the same page with most of America. In the case of the Hudsucker proxy, it had a budget of $30 million and made $3 million at the box office. Ouch. Yeah, it was it was an ouch. 
It's a really I I understand why most of America didn't get it. Like, because it's called the Hudsucker proxy. Yeah, and it's Honestly. very, very obviously, as I said, trying to like not parody but pay homage to a certain kind of movie that was not popular at the time, and most people that weren't like film connoisseurs like wouldn't have gotten it. Like, I understand why it made no money. I, that's why I kind of love it. Like, I love they made this movie. This movie was meant to make absolutely no money, and it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> then after that, the Coen brothers wrote and directed the crime thriller Fargo, which we have mentioned just minutes ago, which was set in their home state of Minnesota. Starred William H. Macy, Francis McDormand. The film, of course, won several awards, including a BAFTA and Con Award for direction and two Oscars for Best Original Screenplay and Best Actress for Francis McDormand. I'm down with those Oscars, by the way. Down with those they were, Oscars. They were very good Oscars. <laughs> 96. <laughs> they were particularly shiny that year. <laughs> And then the Coens' next film was the black comedy The Big Lebowski, 1998. Could not be more different than Fargo. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of the opposite in every conceivable way. I think that's maybe why maybe I didn't like it, because I was like, oh, I love Fargo. I'll love this. Oh, wait, it's a completely different movie. I don't know. I don't see their movies as different as you guys. Oh. I feel that like, they're really all very much them and all in many ways in the same universe. You really feel like Fargo and the Big Lebowski have the same tone? Almost. I mean, Fargo is a little bit more serious, but... It's a little dark comedy. I mean, they're both about, like... They're both kind of noirish, I guess, a little bit. They're both about, like, crime and... Well, but I think they have... I I think they have crimes at the center of most of their stories. I think they have specific film noir elements in almost all their movies, even the ones that aren't really revolving mm-hmm. around crimes. Um, and I think, I, I, like, really, I, I not to get, like, too far into the weeds of what we think about the Coens, but I think it's just that their voice is very particular and their way of world building, like, building out characters that are referring to real-life things and real-life phenomenon, but just approaching it from a very quirky, weird direction... I think that's a voice that you respond to, Chris, in but only in very specific circumstances. Yeah, and I also just feel like they kind of examine the same kinds of characters in most, if not all, of their movies, which are kind of mediocre people, I guess, in a way. Like, kind of... Oh, mainst- losers and dinguses and morons and imps. Like, they... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they routinely examine failed people. But I think most of the best screenwriters and directors do, in some way or another, make broken characters. I think it's just that the Coen brothers' voice is so strong in their movies, and that it's kind of a a frequency that you only share in some circumstances. Like, it harmonizes with you sometimes, and doesn't quite fit yeah. in other ways. I need, like, some other things in there besides just that, and I feel like some of their movies are just that frequency. Written mostly before Fargo, and the entire polar opposite of that movie, The Big Lebowski was then released in 1998. It had a budget of $15 million. It made approximately $46 million at the box office, but we should note that that figure is worldwide and over the entirety that it's been released. <laughs> yeah, the actual gross was $17.5 million at the exactly. time. So, <laughs> exactly. It, is, it was not a huge hit. It was but, not a hit at all. <laughs> but, well, but it made its budget back. 
Um, so at least it was a big recovery from the success of the Hudsucker proxy. But it was really considered a disappointment at the time because they had just, you know, won multiple Oscars for Fargo. And that was such a huge movie and such a big thing. And this movie was uh, like people didn't go see it. This film is, again, the polar opposite of Fargo, both in the ways that the Coen brothers intended it to be and in, in the way they intended to make a very different movie than the movie they had just made previously. And it was also very different in the way that it was received. It was received as very much a mediocre movie at best. The reviews were very, very mixed at most at the time. I believe Ebert rated it three stars out of four. And Peter Howell, in his review for the Toronto Star, wrote, It's hard to believe that this is the work of a team that won an Oscar last year for the original screenplay of Fargo. There's a large amount of profanity in the movie, which seems a weak attempt to paper over dialogue gaps. What? Are you objecting that there is not a lot of profanity no, in the movie? There's the dialogue is incredible and there's a lot of cursing. <laughs> like it's not trying to cover up bad dialogue. That's the good dialogue is these exactly. characters talking like that. Yes. <laughs> the word fuck is used as a kind of paint, like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but with fucks instead of gods and stuff. <laughs> it's also not every character. It's pretty much just the dude and Walter. And Walter. Yeah, absolutely. Peter Howell revised his opinion in a later review and more recently stated that it may just be my favorite Coen Brothers film. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Ebert also wrote an, like about this movie in his like Great Movies collection, so he obviously exactly. added a star at some point. Too. Yeah, no, he later re-reviewed the film, which he did with a lot of movies that came out that he either trashed at the time or loved. Like It was really interesting, as, as much as, as Roger Ebert is a kind of icon of critics, he actually was really exceptional, especially in the way that he would revisit his earlier opinions and see how things held up. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, We're exceptional like that, too. Mm -hmm. I believe we are exceptional, yes. But that really is reflective of the Big Lebowski's trajectory in terms of the critical response. Uh, over time, the reviews have become largely positive for this movie, and the film has become a cult classic, as Chris has said before, noted for its idiosyncratic characters, the dream sequences, the unconventional dialogue, and the eclectic and absolutely fucking perfect soundtrack. That makes me just curious about, like, obviously films are reviewed when they came out, but it feels like there is so much more of value to say 20 years later, for example, but once you actually know what kind of impact it had in the world. So it's, I mean, you have to factor that in when you're really considering a movie, and, like, this one has made an impact. I mean, we'll talk about that more later, but it, it's funny that so many critics were like, hmm, like, just walking that back. And it's like, why do we even put so much stake in what they say initially when they're just going to change their mind based on what kind of like the public thinks anyways? Well, and on the flip side of that, I also think it's a mark of how film criticism as an industry and as a vocation is so often entirely focused on the present moment and reactions to films that are just coming out and are brand new and how little of film criticism, especially in the kind of popular consciousness now, is based on going back to things that came a long time ago and really seeing what their merits are in, a, in you know, after the passage of time. Which, again, is part of why we're exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> this is really just a why we're great episode. 
So I was reading a little bit about the history of this movie, and really the central idea for it came from an L.A. dinner party where a man named Peter Exline, also referred to as Uncle Pete. And also a professor at USC Film School. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, He was going on and on about how this ugly faux Persian rug really tied the room together. (laughs) And then he also told a story about his car being stolen in which he found a 14-year-old's homework. So he and a friend went to the kid's house where his dad was in a hospital bed and they pulled out the homework in a little Ziploc bag. bag. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, literally exactly the scene in the movie. Did they then destroy the car? (laughs) That might have been embellished. (laughs) And, I mean, real-life people were the inspiration for a lot of the characters in this movie. Yes, the Cohen brothers grew up in a neighborhood with a guy named Guy Lebowski, <laughs> who had a brother named Jeffrey. Uh, the dude is based on Jeff Dowd, who was at one point jailed for six months as part of the Seattle Seven. But he was jailed not because he was convicted of a crime, but because he was in contempt of court. So is he just a friend of the Cohen brothers or is he like a producer in Hollywood? Like, what is his, who is he? He's the dude. Okay, sorry I asked. That's all you need to I mean, li- literally, he's the dude. He's pretty much this guy. And I don't think he does a whole lot. Funny enough, Pete Exline, as a kid, also had the nickname The Dude. Oh, really? Yeah, it was... there. So, Becky, there were literally just people that the Coen brothers were encountering in their lives, and they had these anecdotes that came from just spending time with them, and they kind of literally drew them all into this movie. Yeah, Walter, the character played by John Goodman, who's a Vietnam vet, and we'll let you know it fairly frequently. Uh, <laughs> he was actually based on three different people. One of them was the screenwriter of Apocalypse Now, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> John Milius. Yeah. Um, and he was also like a film director and just very notoriously hyper-macho. Uh, and extremely just that kind of kind of fragile masculinity where you project it out where it is as macho strength. And he looks a lot like John Goodman, actually. It's shocking. He looks a whole lot like him, too. The character of Maude, who's played by Julianne Moore, is based on the artist Carolee Schneeman. Yes, Schneeman, <laughs> who is a feminist slash political slash erotic fluxus artist in the 60s. In 1964, she created Meets Joy in which semi-nude performers rolled around with cow organs, fish, and sausages. She also had a piece called Up To and Including Her Limits, in which she flew through the air while painting nude, just as Julianne Moore does in her very memorable opening scene. And uh, she wrote a book about her artistic works, which is called More Than Meat Joy. I think we all hope for more than meat joy in our lives. I'm satisfied with meat joy, actually. (laughs) Rounding out the cast of this film are Steve Buscemi, who stars as Donnie, David Huddleston, John Tortoro, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Sam Elliott as the film's unnamed narrator, also referred to as The Stranger, Tara Reid, of American Pie fame, (laughs) David Tulis, Amy Mann, and Flea, the bassist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) So this film, aside from being inspired by these kind of real-life strange characters the Coen brothers encountered, was also loosely inspired by the work of Raymond Chandler, who was one of the big pulp detective novelists. Joel Cohen said, We wanted to do a Chandler kind of story and how it moves episodically and deals with the characters trying to unravel a mystery, as well as having a hopelessly complex plot that's ultimately unimportant. 
So the story of The Big Lebowski is that Jeff Bridges, who stars as Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. Dude Reno, Dude, what does he call himself? You know, I'm the dude, so that's what you call me. The duder, the... The duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Yeah, okay. He is a Los Angeles, and the word that Wikipedia used was slacker, but I feel like that really underestimates it. He's a paper bag floating in the wind. Layabout? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, He's a pleasure. holdover from, like, the druggy 60s and 70s. A burnout who kept burning. Yeah. Uh, and he's also an avid bowler, and that's about his activity. But, Although we never see him bowl once this movie. So I think this he just fun likes the atmosphere of a bowling alley. <laughs> I don't know if he actually ever bowls. I don't know. Do they say... Like that, he's even playing in the tournament or anything. Like, I don't think they do. Maybe he's just buddies with the guys and owns a bowling ball. <laughs> I feel like he might just be hanging out. <laughs> like he's too lazy to even bowl. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't learn it in this movie. Uh, that's all we know is the world of the film. Well, we need a sequel, I guess. Not bowling. <laughs> <laughs> so the dude is assaulted as a result of mistaken identity, after which the dude learns that a millionaire, also named Jeffrey Lebowski, was the intended victim. The millionaire Lebowski's trophy wife is kidnapped, and he commissions the dude to deliver the ransom to secure her release. But the dude's friend, Walter Sobchak, played by John Goodman, schemes to keep the ransom money and fucks up the plan, sending the dude's world further into stoned chaos. Is that the plot? I <laughs> thank you for reminding me because I just watched it last night and I'm still like, oh yeah, okay, got it. Oh, even like even just at a paragraph, it's it's a brief brief exploration of the like million and one things ha- that happen in the plot. Yeah, it's it's a com- very labyrinthine, complicated, like uh, convoluted. This plot. is not a movie where the plot drives people's enjoyment of the story. It's an added benefit. (laughs) The script was written around the same time as Barton Fink. When the Coen brothers wanted to make the movie, John Goodman at the time was filming episodes for the Roseanne, and Jeff Bridges was making a Walter Hill film called Wild Bill. So the Coen brothers decided to make Fargo in the meantime. Well, that worked out. I guess we'll go make this Oscar movie while we're waiting for our stoner comedy to come together. (laughs) They also cited... Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye as a real influence on the film, especially in terms of the story approach of using the dude with these noir elements, because The Long Goodbye is a quote-unquote Raymond Chandler adaptation, but in that movie, Elliot Gould plays a 70s version of Philip Marlowe and is just hanging out with chicks doing yoga and like hanging out with hippies and is very anachronistic even for the time period that he's in. Um, So it was kind of uh, influenced a lot from that kind of very iconically 70s movie in the way that it very loosely takes these 50s themes um, and just throws them into a completely different time period. Yeah, so this is basically like a throwback to the 40s and 50s, kind of channeled through the 70s, but set and, and made in the 90s, basically. Yeah, and really all of the characters are kind of similarly out of their time in that way. So Walter Subcheck, John Goodman's character, is completely obsessed with Vietnam, with the Vietnam War, even with the kind of language of America back then. And so he's like very much of a different time period. 
Julianne Moore's character, Maud, has this voice that's like a reform school girl <laughs> from five countries at once. She has this indeterminate but very elite accent. She sounds like Madonna when she goes to <laughs> England. Basically. It's an affectation. That was, that was a much better way of putting all of that, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Shout out to our previous episode. And the dude, of course, is like basically a leftover hippie. So he's also a very much a 70s figure who has not really found his place in the 90s. So when the Coens wrote the script, they had kind of John Goodman and Steve Buscemi in mind for their roles, but didn't really have Jeff Bridges in mind. But of course, as I said, like once they... Once they had him try out, they really were hooked on casting him. And Jeff Bridges himself met Jeff Dow, but actually drew on his own experience a lot from the 60s and 70s. Um, He lived in a little place similar to the one the dude lived in, and he did drugs. Um, And it turns out he actually picked most of the clothes that the dude wears in The Big Lebowski. Well, they're his clothes. Exactly. (laughs) So we picked him out of his closet. Including the jellies that he wears. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which I also... (laughs) Apparently this is big lore, because even I know about it. Uh, He, yeah, Jeff Bridges wore those to set. They wanted to do flip-flops, but flip-flops were too noisy. Uh, So they were like, those shoes are perfect. They had to order them from some foreign country, because they couldn't get them, because they were not popular shoes. (laughs) And now they're popular because of this movie. <laughs> is there a line of bathrobes that is now a bestseller? I am almost certain that there is. There's got to be. If not, we're going to tweet Jeff Bridges about that. The Coen brothers often have a knack for casting actors who then go on to have really wonderful, like, prominent careers, whether or not they stick with the Coens. But The Big Lebowski especially has a really stacked cast. I mean, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, and even John Goodman was, like, a relatively big star from Roseanne. And they were able to get Tara Reid, so... Yeah, like, somehow Tara Reid was available at the time. Yeah, I was re-watching this movie, and I kept being very curious about all the people that I kept seeing in it, because I actually did not remember that anyone besides Jeff Bridges and Julianne Moore were in this movie. And so people kept popping up, and I was like, oh, was this before or after they were a thing in the 90s? Because this is right around the time that all of them kind of popped. Jeff Bridges was coming off of White Squall and The Mirror Has Two Faces, so kind of a lull in his career. He wasn't like a hot property or anything. John Goodman was coming off of Roseanne, which had just ended, and uh, Blues Brothers 2000, not released in 2000. It was not. Yeah. um, (laughs) It was also not good. No. I don't know. I feel like this definitely does mark a turning point in John Goodman's career toward being a more serious actor and an actor respected more for his craft, even though it is such an over-the-top funny performance. Yeah. So Steve Buscemi had been in Fargo before, but this was right between Con Air and Armageddon. (laughs) So (laughs) it kind of reminded me that Steve Buscemi had had like a really big, like mainstream action career. He was still always playing kind of like a weird guy, but... uh, He had the market cornered on funny looking dudes. Yeah. This seems like a very Steve Buscemi role now, but it actually was kind of atypical for him in this era. Philip Seymour Hoffman, this was two years after Twister and one year after Boogie Nights. So he had really just kind of popped out of Boogie Nights as a 
really notable actor just a few months before this movie was released. Same with Julianne Moore. Um, she had a career before this, but this was right after The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and then Boogie Nights again for her. So Boogie Nights was kind of the movie that also like solidified her as like Julianne Moore, the actress that deserved an Oscar and got one like 20 <laughs> years later. And Tara Reid. <laughs> American Pie was huge. It was, but it hadn't come out yet. Oh, that was a 99. Yeah, so she... W- wow. This was her first real movie. Uh, she was on Days of Our Lives before this. Interesting. And then this came right before the kind of teen one-two-three punch of Urban Legend, Cruel Intentions, and American Pie. So this movie was like her introduction, and I had no idea Tara Reid was in this movie. <laughs> I was like, oh, like that's insane that Tara Reid is in a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I even by Coen Brothers standards, I have to say, this has some of my very favorite performances in any motion picture ever. Like, ever. Even, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't even have that big of a part. Exactly. But he, like, kind of steals every moment as... Um, Brant. As Brant, the, uh, the millionaire Lebowski's... I was about to say servant. Like, right-hand man. He is. He's like a servant boy. Servant boy? Um <laughs> Just his, like, trying to keep everything professional amongst uh, maniac idiots (laughs) is hilarious. Go ahead. Blow. You want me to blow on your uh, toes? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I can't blow that far. Are you sure he won't mind? Billy doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Oh, that must be exhausting. You're not blowing. Our guest has to be getting along, Mrs. Lebowski. Oh, your bunny. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. Wonderful woman. We're all we're all very fond of her. Very free spirited. Brand can't watch though, or he has to pay a hundred. <laughs> That's marvelous. Yeah, and it's interesting to see Philip Seymour Hoffman still in his, like, supporting character mode, where he's kind of just cast as this, like, quirky guy, but he's not, like, being Philip Seymour Hoffman, as we would know him, like, in a few movies later. Yeah, well, and I mean, up and down the line, too, I mean, John Goodman, again, has had really great performances. I think he's great as, like, Dan on Roseanne, but this is such an insane, deranged character in a world full of people who are deranged in a million different ways. I mean, speaking of brief screen appearances, uh, John Turturro plays this Latino pederast bowler named Jesus. That old chestnut. (laughs) That old... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Who really just has like a half dozen lines in this movie. There's no reason for him to be in this movie other than world building, really. And he just steals. They have an entire moment of his introduction to uh, the Gypsy Kings version of Hotel California. Yes, this great Spanish language version of Hotel California. There's no reason for him to have as much screen time or any screen time, really, considering his character has no no touch on the plot at all but it's still great and he and he acts the shit out of jesus quintana (laughs) i was astounded by this being john totoro in this movie because i I had literally just seen john totoro the night before in uh 
the movie Landline, in which it's a much more dramatic turn. And then I was just like, oh, like, <laughs> like this is, I would never have cast John Turturro in that role just based on my knowledge of what John Turturro can do. I guess they had faith in him. Yeah. My point is... Are you ready to be fucked, man? I see you roll your way to the semis. Dios mío, man. Liam and me, we're going to fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. I think this might be a good time to bring up the fact that he is reprising that character in a movie about Jesus Quintana, and that he's asked the Coen brothers to allow him to write and direct this movie using that character. So we'll see yeah, more of Yeah, so him. the last news I heard about that was in, like, 2017, because they were starting to film in 2016. They did get... He did get permission from the Coens to use that character, um, and he, like, wrote and is directing the movie. Mm-hmm. There are apparently no other Lebowski characters in it. It's just the story of Jesus. <laughs> Um, (laughs) That Jesus. (laughs) So I look forward to seeing that. Honestly, it's just such a complete embodiment of such a bizarre and repulsive character. (laughs) Do I want to see a movie where the protagonist is a a pedophile, (laughs) like Bowler? I don't know. You have to go door to door. (laughs) Very confident pedophile Bowler. We'll see. So now that we've rewatched The Big Lebowski, do we abide or... Did we land gutter balls this time? <laughs> Everyone's looking at me. <laughs> Why don't you guys share your thoughts first? I loved it, Chris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a perfect film in my favorite movie ever, Chris. Here, I'll, I'll, while I was watching this movie again, and I loved it, um, I was thinking about you, Chris, and I was like, I was like, I will, I will get it if he doesn't like it still. Like, I think this movie and maybe I'm drawing from my own experience, it's a tough movie. And I think that if it's not your humor, then there really might not be anything for you in it. So I can understand people who just don't like this movie and don't get it and don't understand, like, maybe they're, like, some things they appreciate, but, like, it's just... I think it's just not for everyone. And I think that I grew to love it, and now it's totally for me. And I think it's so quotable, so rewatchable. It's so weird. There's so many tangents. And you're like, why is that guy in an iron lung? Why <laughs> Why is this guy... Who's that guy in the purple suit? And he's just not in the movie anymore? Oh, wait, no, he's back, but he's not. He has no idea of the plot. Why is she hanging from a ceiling painting? Like, there's just so many moments like that. Like, I can understand why somebody would be like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> um, but I think that if you can just enjoy the dialogue, and I think underneath it's actually a really good mystery. Um, it took me, like, a couple tries to be like, oh, wow, actually, this is a really good mystery, and I wouldn't have seen that coming. Like, it's a good noir movie. Um, it's a really good noir movie that follows the steps of traditional noir in really unconventional ways. Um, but I can totally get if somebody's not into that. 
And I mean, just amplifying what you were saying, like it even sets up most of the same kinds of characters as a noir film does, you know, except this time around, the detective is a completely wretched stoner. And Maude, Julianne Moore's character, is the mall character. Mm-hmm. And the femme fatale is Tara Reid, of course, as in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like detectives, there's hidden uh, secret identities, and. Um, twists. twists and the missing girl. That's a, a popular convention in noir, but it's all flipping it on its head. So I think this movie is actually really smart and beautifully shot. Like Roger Deakins is a genius. I love everything he does with the Coen Yeah, Brothers. that was the thing I really wanted to highlight was just because this was this has been such a long career collaboration with Roger Deakins and the Coen Brothers. And I mean, Deakins has done so many amazing things like separate from them, but especially in this movie, I feel like he captures Southern California so accurately. Like, this is such an L.A. movie in every single way, but especially visually. So, Chris, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris... So I really tried to go into this movie without my grudge, (laughs) open-minded. Without the film series, The Grudge? Yes. (laughs) Starring Sarah Michelle Gellar. (laughs) I don't really like slacker movies or stoner comedies. Any kind of movies where it centers on stupid men, I, I have really grown tired of that because I feel like, when was the last time you even saw a comedy starring a man where he wasn't a total idiot? And so I really kind of saw this as one of the roots of those kinds of movies. Also, like where you talked about the movies of Kevin Smith at this time, it kind of, to me, felt like it was going to be the same thing and that I was really not (laughs) going to respond to it. But I liked this movie. Yay! What? Yeah. <laughs> what? 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 You guys, you do, you can't see this. I'm about to jump out the window. Yeah. It's my own window. I'm going to have to pay to replace it. It's a good thing we're on the first floor, too. Oh, my God. I mean, I would break my own fall again. Well, now I want to hear why you liked it. Why did you like this movie? What's wrong no with you? <laughs> I, said, I said before you got here that you would like Julian Moore and Tara Reid. I did. But I'm glad yeah, that yeah. you liked more than no, that. No, I actually liked... <laughs> I enjoyed watching this movie. I don't think it's... Like, in retrospect, thinking back on it, just based on kind of the cult status, I remembered the dude being such... Even more of a slacker and more of a, like, fucking idiot and kind of like this... Just this asshole who is, like, stumbling through this mystery. I was actually surprised to find that he, like, has a moral compass. He's kind of dumb, but also not super dumb. I mean... He, he solves the mystery. Yeah. Right, that's the thing. He solves this ridiculously convoluted mystery. <laughs> he drinks a lot of white Russians, but he doesn't get high as much as I was expecting. So I think I was like kind of projecting a lot of things that have become comedy tropes after this movie back onto this movie, where I think this movie did kind of start a lot of that, uh, or at least help along the way of influencing it. But I was very surprised that this movie was as restrained as it was, which is not really probably a word that most people would use to describe it. But based on what I was expecting and some of the other Coen brothers, like zaniness that I feel like just kind of goes off the wall. Like I actually thought this movie had a pretty compelling plot. I enjoyed most of the characters. It was funny in a lot of moments. So even though I would say it's not like my cup of tea necessarily, like I wouldn't watch this movie over and over again. I did end up like appreciating it and totally understanding why other people like this movie. And and I would say I liked it as well. What was your favorite part? 
Julianne Moore and Tara Reid. <laughs> <laughs> I know you very well. <laughs> End of list. Was it just like Maud's introduction and the whole like... Um, it's so fucking The incredible. whole part where she's like, my art has been commended as being strongly vaginal, which bothers some men. The word itself makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. <laughs> my very favorite part was when she refers to sex as a natural zesty enterprise. <laughs> you mean coitus? Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? Sex, the physical act of love. Coitus. Do you like it? I was talking about my rug. You're not interested in sex? You mean coitus? I like it too. It's a male myth about feminists that we hate sex. It can be a natural, zesty enterprise. However, there are some people, it is called ceteriasis in men, nymphomania in women, who engage in it compulsively and without joy. Oh, no. Oh, yes, Mr. Lebowski. These unfortunate souls cannot love in the true sense of the word. I mean, I do like that character because I tend to gravitate toward characters who are more ambitious and driven, and that's why I have a hard time with, like, layabouts or stoners in a lot of movies, and that kind of tends to be almost exclusively, I feel like, what we get from men in comedy these days. They're always so dumb. You know what? What I really like about the dude's character is that I wouldn't call him stupid, he is inarticulate. He has a tendency throughout the whole movie to repeat things that have been said to him through various sources. Sometimes it's George Bush on <laughs> on the TV, <laughs> and sometimes it's Maude. Sometimes, it, you know, um, he just repeats things back because he can't kind of can't think of the words himself. But I wouldn't call him dumb. He, he doesn't try to be smarter than he is. Like, he doesn't want more in life than to be left alone with his white Russians and his bowling and his rug. Like he doesn't and have his joints. and his joints. Like he doesn't really want. It's not like he's greedy. You know, he wants some money. Sure, like oh, ten grand. Sure, I'll do it. You know. Yeah, but he's not like exploiting it and like trying to get more money out of it. He's like, cool, twenty thousand dollars or however. Yeah, much it is. and in fact, what he really wanted was just his rug replaced. And he was like, yeah, sure, I'll. He lied and said, oh, he said I can take any rug in the house. But all he wanted was his rug. All um, the dude wanted was his rug back. Well, yeah. I actually really appreciated that because. He has a, like I said before, he has a moral compass. Like, he knows that he lost his rug because of this guy, so he's going to take a rug back. But it's not, like, he doesn't, like, go in there and, like, steal the guy's, like, Mm -hmm. all this crazy stuff. He just, like, takes the one thing that he lost, and, like, that's good for him. And so I I liked the fact that he has kind of, like, a pretty, like, normal, actual sense of right and wrong. And he's concerned when he thinks that Tara Reid might actually be kidnapped and... They're gonna kill that poor woman! Yeah, like... (laughs) They're gonna kill that poor fucking woman. I can just see a movie, a version of this movie, I feel like, that would have been made five to ten years later, where this character is just super obnoxious, super bumbling through everything, and it's just all played as, like, slapstick. And that was kind of the movie I remember, just based on mostly, like, all of the cult humor around this, which, like, the White Russians, I was like, okay, the bowling, just the name, the dude, like, all that stuff is kind of annoying out of context. Uh, No, I totally, in, like, thinking of it from that perspective, I totally understand how it would be, like, off-putting and insular and, like, out of context, those seem like very stupid jokes. Especially, like, the dude. It seems like such a dumb thing conceptually. So I was surprised that those actually became funny again in the context of the movie. I find him just really lovable. He's a good guy. And that's why I think that this movie works is because that character really works. And Walter is more like hot and cold. And it's a good thing he's not the main character that we care about. 
um, even though he's like the second supporting mm-hmm. um, guy. But I think that they're really good foils for each other. And I feel like that's when the Coen brothers are most successful for me is when there is someone like that as the main character. Because I think they don't always put that person as the main character. Sometimes the main character is kind of a selfish dumbass. And I think those are the movies that really don't work for me. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I, I I think the dude doesn't just have a moral compass. I think he is philosophically and spiritually a very, like, developed person. And is, in many ways, like, kind of has a Buddhist outlook on life. Yeah. Where he's in part using the white Russians and the joints to do this, but he maintains somewhat of a separation from the craziness of the world, or he tries to until the world draws him out into it. He tries not to do wrong by anyone. Like you're saying, like he's, you know, he doesn't just care for the well-being of the poor innocent woman. He is upending (laughs) what little of a life he has to try to find her and save her life. Yeah. And he doesn't like, go after Maud, for example, like I f- like Ace Ventura, for example, like we felt gross about the detective character in that movie, like banging Courtney Cox, like basically without any like actual charm. In this movie, like she goes after him and she's like trying to get pregnant, but it's like... She seduces him just for his sperm. And yeah. I love that so much. It's so much better. Like you still have the trope of like the detective character sleeping with the mall, but it's just done in this way that's much more thoughtful, I think, than Ace Ventura. <laughs> Everything is more thoughtful than Ace Ventura. Yeah. You guys on the scale of Ace Ventura to the Big Lebowski. This movie turned out to be a lot more nuanced. But I <laughs> what was, did you think this was? Fun and games? <laughs> I was surprised by things like that that were so against kind of the normal tropes that you would see. That are even in so many of like the old noir movies. Like usually those aren't typically great movies for women either. I think another aspect of The Big Lebowski that we really have to go into is the soundtrack. The original score for the film was done by Carter Burwell, and the Coen brothers also worked with T-Bone Burnett, who was who is a music producer, but is also their collaborator on a lot of their soundtracks. And while the Coens were writing the screenplay, they had Kenny Rogers' song, Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In. Is that the full title of the song? <laughs> It is. Uh, to see what condition my condition is in is in parentheses. Uh, <laughs> why do they do that? My single my single is dropping is dropping. <laughs> and so while the Coen's were writing the screenplay, they had that, uh, the Gypsy King cover of Hotel California that Becky mentioned, and several Credence Clearwater revival songs in mind. T-Bone Burnett helped them pick out other songs by folks like Henry Mancini, by Ema Sumac, uh, there's a Nina Simone song on there. I just realized that in the movie, the dude says, I hate the fucking Eagles, man. And that's the Ho- Hotel California is playing over their, their evil nemesis. Board. Exactly. That's the, that's the other thing is um, in line, in keeping with how re- rewatchable the Coens are for us. Each time I watch this movie, I still find new little tie-ins like that and things that are referencing other parts of the movie. Becky, like you were saying about Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, um, much of the dialogue in this movie, not just from the dude, but from all the characters, mm-hmm. is repeated from other moments and characters. And there's sometimes things that never happen together. Um, but just, to me, part of the magic of this movie is 
how kind of the cyclical nature of hearing these same phrases and lines over again kind of brings you, I think, more into the experience of the dude's mind and how dazed he is trying to solve this mystery. I think that's an effective part, along with the cinematography and definitely along with the soundtrack, in kind of bringing you into that experience in a way that I think a lot of stoner comedies never even try to, because they just aren't made by filmmakers who are that thoughtful. That rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. You know, this is the fucking guy. I could find this fucking Lebowski guy. His name is Lebowski? That's your name, dude. This is the guy who should compensate me for the fucking rug. His wife goes out and owes money all over town and they pee on my rug? They pee on your fucking rug? They peed on my fucking rug. That's right, dude. They peed on your fucking rug. The repetitive dialogue is something that kind of stood out to me as a partial negative. Like, a lot of it I found worked, but maybe it's more because it's been repeated by a lot of other filmmakers. But I feel like repeating the same line over and over again to be funny has become kind of a thing. Are you talking about... They peed on your fucking rug. That is one of no, many I lines. Totally disagree. That is the funniest when they just keep milking that line over and over until it's I so totally, funny. Yeah. You weren't into that. <laughs> I, it's fine. I, it's not my preferred comedy to just repeat the same line over and over again. I get a little bit annoyed with it, but I think that it mostly worked in this movie. It just kind of more like annoyed me because I remembered how many times it's been badly done in other movies. Well, that's not this movie's fault. I want to talk about the dream sequence. Yeah, well, I think we have to talk well, about two. the dream sequences, too. There's the first one is where he uh, he gets knocked out by Maud, who steals... One of Maud's henchmen. I think who, she's there, too. I have to say, I have to interrupt with this. That henchman is played by Carlos Leon, who is the father of oh, Lourdes. Oh, yeah! Wachacone. Leon, another throwback to our last episode about <laughs> Madonna. He gets smacked on the head while they're stealing his rug, and then he has this dream sequence where he's flying on the rug in the sky, kind of following Maud. And then the second one is my favorite moment in the movie. I mean, it's probably a lot of people's, but it's the Busby Berkeley-inspired uh dream sequence uh, where a bunch of showgirls with bowling pins for their headdresses um, are dancing around the dude who uh, is dressed as Carl Hungus in the porn movie and also <laughs> dancing like his landlord in the there's so many callbacks <laughs> to different parts of the movie I didn't get those callbacks at all like watching this that's interesting yeah no it's every single moment is basically a callback there's the whole bowling motif obviously mm-hmm. That um, one I got. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Saddam Hussein, who he sees on the TV in the supermarket, is is uh, cleaning the the bowling, bowling shoes. shoes. Yeah. Um, he's dancing like his landlord when he goes. And he doesn't pay his rent, so instead he pays with time of seeing his landlord <laughs> in these theater productions. Um, he's wearing the Carl Hungus uh, jumpsuit for, from Log Jammin. Um, and he's all. It's it's this. Beautifully shot, uh, Busby Berkeley um, dance number, which means like there's lots of like Follies girls and they're all synchronized dancing together. And then there's a crazy moment where the dude kind of is uh, spiraling underneath the legs of all of these uh, dancers all at once going down the bowling alley like he's a ball that's been rolled. Yeah, his face 
in that sequence is the funniest face ever. Like, I laugh every time I see it. He's just so deliriously happy, like, looking up the skirts. It's so great. (laughs) There might be a reason for that, which is that all of the dancers in that scene decided it would be funny if they put, like, they cut up a giant black wig and put, like, it as pubic hair (laughs) under their underwear. So, like, the first time you went under one, he was like, oh, this girl's, like, not really keeping things up and then it was like every single one of them everyone thought it was hilarious except for the coen brothers who were not amused they had to spend one hundred fifty thousand dollars to cgi out that jungle that's basically what they said yeah um i love that i love that whole sequence so much maybe it's just because it's like all of a sudden there's like a dance number in this movie it kind of just adds to it being such a great stoner movie i mean the main character loves pot but like there's so many weird moments and different tonal changes it's like now we're a di- now we're a broadway uh musical um that it it's really fun to watch when you're stoned <laughs> again i think it does things that most quote-unquote stoner comedies don't have the intelligence or filmmaking chops to do like that's the thing you don't just like do a dream sequence that is a busby berkeley <laughs> musical <laughs> number like that takes an insane amount of filmmaking acumen um just to be able to actually capture that convincingly on film um so i wanted to also go into the impact of the big lebowski in terms of that kind of cult status um i'm i I don't know like you guys may have read about some statistics about this but there are several uh, days-long conventions called Lebowski Fests that take place not just in Los Angeles, but in cities across the country and around the world um, that, like, tens of thousands of people attend. Uh, there are a shit ton of books about the kind of philosophy of the dude. Uh, Jeff Bridges even wrote one where he talked with a Buddhist, like a Zen Buddhist master, um, about the kind of aspects, the philosophical, uh, the philosophical aspects of the dude. Um, and among other things, there's been somewhat of a joke religion invented called dudism uh, that attempts to convey these principles. That I can't abide. Yeah, I pretty much can't abide it either. I mean, again, in keeping, Chris, with your kind of uh, annoyance at the out-of-context quotations that people like to spread around from the movie. Um, I'm not sure I would invest all that much of a philosophy or a a religion of any sort in deutery. Um, No, please please don't. Yeah. So going off of what Seth was saying earlier about the cinematography, I really kind of appreciated the way that it makes bowling looks so graceful and almost like an (laughs) olympic sport like a slow-mo like figure skater or something but it's in many ways kind of like a very ugly and very uncoordinated looking sport so i appreciated the visual styling of this movie in ways that i didn't think i was going to because i actually had kind of confused this movie with kingpin oh (laughs) oh god how could you i i thought they might be the same movie i don't know you really misremembered this movie. <laughs> and also, I love that the movie begins with a tumbleweed <laughs> blowing, at first through tumbleweed-like uh, areas and then ending up on the beach in L.A. Like, it, it's a I perfect, think it's Santa Monica Pier. I yeah, it's it a is. perfect visual metaphor for this movie. Of like, I feel like the dude is also like this kind of tumbleweed kind of guy who's in an environment that he doesn't really fit in anymore. 
I want to talk about The Stranger, played yeah. by Sam Elliott. It's kind of a great introduction because even the narrator kind of loses track of what he's talking about. And it almost feels like the narrator is kind of stoned. And he's like, what was I saying? He's a man that, well, whatever. Like, let's just start the movie. <laughs> <I'll hail. laughs> um, and his two cameos, like where we physically see him, where he's talking to the dude, almost there's this beautiful magical realism that's in this movie that is present in a, almost all the Coen brothers movies where things that obviously would not be in reality are presented and Sam Elliott is the biggest one of that. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's just having these little catch-ups with the dude. <laughs> um, just checking in. Just checking in. This narrator who's clearly like out of a Western and he's just so funny to look at and just his voice makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> you got a good sarsaparilla? Sioux City sarsaparilla? Yeah, it's a good one. How you doing there, dude? Not too good, man. One of those days, huh? Yeah. Well, a wiser fellow than myself once said, sometimes you eat the bar and much obliged. Sometimes the bar while he eats you. Mm. That's some kind of Eastern thing? Far from it. I went really back and forth on if I liked The Stranger and Sam Elliott in this movie. Like, the narration in the beginning, I think, works well. It's very much like a throwback to old kind of westerns and and stuff. And then when he appears, like, it's so weird because it's, (laughs) it's like he doesn't seem to know what he's doing there. And Sam Elliott also, like, literally told the Coen brothers, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this movie. Like, I don't think he even got what he was doing. And then at the end, he's just, like, rambling on, and I was like, this feels like bad writing, but then he just kept going. And then I was just like, it made me think, like, who is this? Like, who is the person narrating any movie? Like, is it just a drunk guy at a bar? He's like, I happen to know that he has a little Lebowski on the way. I'm like, how do you know that? Because he's an omniscient figure, and we're seeing the narrator have a, a drink of sarsaparilla at the bar. <laughs> like, I liked it in this movie because it pointed out the ridiculousness of having a narrator at all in any movie, basically, where you don't like know who that character is. Absolutely. Like, why, why do we trust this person? <laughs> and of course, it's like so in keeping with all the ways they kind of poke fun at these genre conventions. And yeah, the movie does have kind of aspects of the West as well, just in the way that kind of chaos visits people no matter, no matter what their intentions are. Uh, and of course, nihilists who don't believe in anything whatsoever are always going to set about to deprive you of your property or your life. So would you like this movie if it was starring Mel Gibson? Because <laughs> that was their original approach to star in it. That's tough. Oh. I think Jeff Bridges gives such a naturalistic hilariously comedic performance that like when he gets his lifetime achievement Oscar like this is the movie that he's, it's going to be played the most I feel like, like I hope so, so and I mean it's 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 both an amazing like comedic performance but also like a physical performance like there are so many scenes of kind of physical comedy of him being like thrown around by goons like getting his head dunked in the toilet like those dancing. dream sequences yeah, yeah the dancing and the dream sequences is so great and a lot of lack of vanity like 
I don't know if he gained weight for this He did. Movie. He specifically ex- gained weight for this movie to look more like Jeff Dowd. <laughs> I figured, because he's off, his, like, shirt is often, like, coming up and, like, showing his, like, kind of, like, little rolls of fat, like, oh, coming amazing. out over that's his... So great. And he's, like, he's always wearing shorts, so they're always, like, kind of, like, creeping up to a degree that you probably don't really want to see on this character. And yeah, and he's it's also a complete like lack of vanity. Always reclining in yeah. any chair that he's ever in. So he's like at the most unflattering angle. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. maybe Mel Gibson would have been funny, but like I don't care to find out. I'm perfectly happy with Jeff Bridges. I think, I mean, we know a lot of things about Mel Gibson now that we didn't at the time, but I just cannot see that movie at all. And Charlize Theron auditioned for the role of Bunny, <gasps> which is probably the only time Charlize Theron has lost a role to Tara Reid. <laughs> but not the last. I remembered the line, I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. Of hope course you he did. did. Of course he did. But I didn't remember it from this movie or any movie. I think I had just thought it might have been from Tara Reid's life. <laughs> Oh God! Because I knew it was a, a, a line, oh. but I, I, when it came out in this one, I was like, "Oh, that's you thought it was from TMZ." Movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chris, what Tara Reid does for a thousand dollars would astound you, but I don't think it's that. I went a little bit down a Tara Reid rabbit hole. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> because I was watching this and I was like, "She's good in this movie. She like she fits the character. I think she's, she's really good in this movie, guys. She has like two lines of dialogue. And I think that's great. why." I'm sorry. No, but I mean, she's perfectly serviceable. And I was like, she's not really been a bad actress in the movies that I've seen her in. She's in a lot of bad movies, like the Sharknado. And whatever she did in the 2000s was probably not good. But I was like, why did she become such a joke? And I started, like, reading things. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was She's like party girl, yeah. right? Like, she dated Carson Daly. And- oh, so that can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Where did they meet? Was it at Last Call? Boo. <laughs> cut, cut that out. Never. I also really enjoyed the scene where the chief of police of Malibu is beating the shit out of... <laughs> he throws the coffee cup at his forehead. Yeah, yeah. Again, like, physical comedy, it culminates in this sheriff throwing a full mug of coffee at the dude's head, and it bounces, like, square perfectly, and he flies back in his chair. We have to talk about the basic cable version of this movie... And the scene where Walter uh, destroys the car that he thinks was bought with the money that he thinks... Is he wearing a bra that's drawn onto him? (laughs) No, that would be showgirls. Um, I believe the line is, this is what happens, Larry, when you meet a stranger in the Alps. What? (laughs) Yeah. This is what happens, Larry. This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I could easily see that being the line that the Coen brothers put in this movie. Well, and they wrote the line and filmed the scene with John Goodman performing that line in anticipation of this movie getting cut to a basic cable version. Did they? Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. You see what happens? This is what happens, Larry. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? This is what happens. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens, Larry? This is what happens when you feed him scrambled eggs. What happens, Larry? <laughs> I think that there's no point in this movie being on basic cable, along with like Pulp Fiction and a couple other movies. Like, you'd have to like take out every other word. You really should watch them on stolen pay per view. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is the best way to take in censored. cinema. They're not censored. And I think in this movie that profanity is, of course, used to insane amounts, but I think it creates a kind of tapestry for who that character actually is. Um, and I think it's used in a way that becomes its own kind of little art form. Yeah, I mean, that character is basically flashing back to Vietnam at all times. And so I think it fits him. I am a little, like, on the fence about, like, just using the word fuck, like, all the time for comedic effect. I feel like it's a little bit overdone here, just as, like, the repeating dialogue is. But in general, like, it worked for me. I believe that these characters would talk like that. What do you think this movie says about L.A. or, like, how it represents L.A.? Like, does it feel... I think you said it feels like L.A., but to me it feels... It's like a Midwestern version of L.A. in a way, or kind of like, it feels like the Valley, which I guess is maybe the Midwestern version of L.A. Yeah, because they don't go to Hollywood. They don't go to Rodeo Drive and Beverly Hills. They go to, like, the Valley and then Malibu. Yeah, no, like, the Valley is hitting on it. Like, a lot of the detective movies that it was influenced by goes through a lot of different social classes of L.A. in a lot of different areas. And I think it does kind of sidestep all the Hollywoodish parts to its credit. And I think I liked that about this, along with when I first started seeing Paul Thomas Anderson's movies like Boogie Nights, because they showed me a part of California and L.A. specifically that you wouldn't necessarily see in Hollywood movies. Yeah, knowing L.A. kind of makes this movie a little funnier, I feel like, in that Malibu scene, because you'd probably expect the cops in Malibu to be the gentlest cops that don't have a lot of... Don't have a lot of crime to deal with, I assume. And this guy's a total hard ass. I don't know. I feel like that was... I don't know. I have particular thoughts about policemen that we'll address in other podcasts, but I think that was more realistic than not. Because I think Jeff Bridges... (laughs) I think the dude is the exact kind of character who someone like that would kick the shit out of. You know, and he's like, he it culminates in the line, like, stay the fuck out of my beautiful beach community or whatever. And that that sounds pretty true to form for Malibu police. I mean, like, if you look a certain way and encounter those police and you're it, wandering it in feels the street. Like, it feels like a local's version of L.A. Where, because the locals don't go to Hollywood and Highland and they don't go, you know, to all the spots that people that don't live in L.A. would recognize. And I don't really recognize anything in this movie. Like, oh, that's the... That's the shop or whatever, but it's I recognize. But I recognize like the general <laughs> LA ness of it, like the fact that the guy in the iron lung is a screenwriter, and there's a porn community, which is a big thing in LA. And, and his landlord is into one man theater performances in, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. in and North Maud Hollywood. Is an artist, like exactly. a very pretentious <laughs> artist. <laughs> yeah, and also talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, I found it interesting. It might be partially made up that there's a rivalry between them and. By, between the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson, but they did beat him for Best Picture and Best Director that year. And then he made Inherent Vice, which is, it's, it's very different than this movie, but it's also very much playing on the same tropes of a stoner detective character kind of bumbling through a, a really insane mystery. In so Los I, Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I oh, find absolutely. it interesting that he also did that. I I kind of wonder if... And I think they're kind of stylistic cousins in a way. Yeah, I think that that that's interesting. And the police mistreat the the specific oh, conflict totally. of the police versus the kind of like stoner like leftover hippies yeah. is very much a part of that film. 
So my kind of final thought is, as I may have mentioned once or twice, this is my favorite movie ever. Um, but now you hate it, right? After seeing yeah, it again. I have, after talking it out and really considering <laughs> it, is it good? I have seen this movie hundreds of times, many hundreds of times. And I used to put it on just on infinite repeat when I would write scripts, because any time that I would kind of zone out of what I was doing, I knew that there would be a moment that was kind of unexpected and out of left field and would not be doing the traditional things that a movie of that type would be expected to do. Despite the fact that it is a very talky movie, the humor is physical, but so based in the dialogue. Even for that, it isn't the talkiest movie in existence, and it has an economy with that language. And I think also with that profanity that kind of elevates it and elevates the humor of it for me. And I still find things this many years later that make me laugh or entertain me for different reasons than they did before. I just think, overall, it's so fascinating to me the way that this movie flew completely under the radar. It was a disappointment in terms of the box office. It was a huge disappointment in terms of what was expected from the Coens, and really what could reasonably be expected from the Coens, because a movie like Fargo is spiritually, cinematically, so many worlds apart from The Big Lebowski. And I think it's really cool, Chris, that you... Um, have found a new kind flavor of Coens that you enjoy, where their kind of frequency, even in a movie like a stoner movie that you usually don't like. It was an admittedly low bar that it had to clear because I was not expecting to like it. <laughs> Those are the height of bars that the dude can clear. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> this movie would have kind of grown tired for me if it had been too focused on John Goodman and Jeff Bridges but there's enough like spice like here and there like Julianne Moore is a completely different kind of character because she's very articulate and like she's kind of like the opposite of the dude she's like too intellectual she's terrifyingly articulate (laughs) yeah so there's enough of that kind of stuff that gets me like oh this is something a little bit different instead of I feel like most comedies that are focusing on like a stoner character like everything that happens is dumb, everyone around them is dumb, or just kind of bland. So I I liked that this movie really kind of just like threw a lot of things in like David Thewlis's character is just like comes out of nowhere, doesn't make any <laughs> sense, but he's funny for the five minutes that he's in. <laughs> I love this movie. I would say if you have never seen it, you should totally watch it. If you don't get it or like it, you should probably watch it again. I say give it one chance. That's all you really need. (laughs) I normally would say that, but I think for Coen Brothers movies, maybe give it a few days or a few months or whatever, then uh, give it six months (laughs) every day. (laughs) You'll love it. It's fantastic. It's so funny. It's such a funny movie. And even though its characters are so fucking anachronistic, I think this movie kind of exists out of time. And even though it references things that were really specific to the time periods that these characters are all respectively stuck in, I think pretty much anyone who's grown up in roughly our time period would find a lot to relate to and will get a lot of it. Like, there's not really much of this movie that'll go over anyone's heads. Well, I don't think we mentioned it, but this movie takes place in 1991, even though it was released in 1998. It's a weird time jump. Yeah. Only like 
it yeah, feels kind years. of purposeless because there's not that much. There's a little bit of George Bush and there's Saddam Hussein, who actually, by the way, was played by an actor who has played Saddam Hussein six times. And that <laughs> is his only screen credits. <laughs> he looks like him. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not really sure why they decided to move it seven years in the past. but The valley looked the same yeah. either way. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that adds to the out of timeliness that it was released in 1998. But set in 1991, but about characters who feel like they're in the 60s and 70s, but kind of in the style of movies that were from the 30s and 40s. It, well, and it was really interesting. I, I checked out a couple books from a film library. Um, one was Interviews with the Coen Brothers, and it was just fascinating how intentional that kind of separation from time and that kind of just confusion at every level was just baked into the cake from the start. Um, I have one more thing to add that a white Russian was the very first drink I ever ordered at a bar because I was 20 and I didn't know what drinks were. And I was like, well, <laughs> the Big Lebowski. <laughs> if there's anyone I want to follow the example of, it's that guy. <laughs> and in 2014, the Big Lebowski was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Can we talk about that for a second? Because they... Like, it'll be like, oh, and this year Titanic was selected. It's like, oh, really? You finally decided, like, Titanic was worthy of <laughs> yeah. preserving. Hey, Library of Congress, how are you picking them? Like, why don't they just preserve all of the movies? Is there a limit on movies that can the be preserved? The box is only so big that they put them into. <laughs> See, they have to make a new black box each time. It's the same kind of black box from the airplanes. Well, much like Donnie, we're out of our element and out of time on the When We Were Young podcast. On the next episode... We're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be revisiting video games that we loved as kids, specifically the Super Mario Brothers games, 1, 2, and 3. I think there's I think there's a few more than that, too. Uh, Mario Kart, maybe? And there's World. World. Yeah, there's a lot. Universe. <laughs> Dr. Mario. I know that I'm going to be playing a lot of Donkey Kong Country in anticipation for this episode. <laughs> We're also going to be taking a look back at the 1989 uh, family adventure movie, The Wizard, which was basically a full-length version of a Super Mario 3 commercial. <laughs> I just looked at the poster for that tonight. I was like, what the hell? It just has, like, Marios everywhere. And I haven't seen this movie or heard of any of this before, so I am just confused <laughs> at every level. It stars, that won't change. It stars Fred Savage and Jenny Lewis, uh, who is a popular singer. Right, Kylie. Kylie. <laughs> what? So, yeah, that. <laughs> so, brush up on your Atari and your uh, um, Nintendo. Uh, uh, and your Sega Genesis. Blow, yes, your Sega Genesis. I don't have any Sega Genesis games, but maybe we can find some Sonic somewhere. So mm-hmm. so that'll be fun. Do you have a Game Boy? I don't have a Game Boy, no. I have a Game Boy and several games. <laughs> the When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this adventure, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. You can call us appalling or call us anything you want. Just call us, baby. <laughs> call us by your name. Call us by Chris's name. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and all those other things. I have been Seth Pearson. I am Becky. And I'm a good man and thorough. (laughs) 
Je vis en tel cas. 